You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Well, good morning. What a joy it is to worship together. It feels like every time we gather, um, the, the sweetness of our worship together just continues to grow. And so just so thankful for uh, you all as a, as a church family, as we're forming and as we're looking towards uh, planting Redemption Church. And, uh, and again, just so thankful uh, for the privilege of being together. What a great gift it is. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 3. Um, we're actually just going to look at one verse right now. This is going to be a, a little bit more of a topical message, meaning we're going to kind of jump around the scriptures a little bit, and I'll explain why in just a moment. Uh, but we're going to look uh, to start off with, with Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. And here is the word of the Lord. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come this morning, we are so thankful, Lord, to come with like-minded brothers and sisters in Christ to lift high the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, it is our desire that in all things that we do as a church and all things that we do in our individual lives, that Christ would be exalted, that he would be made much of, Lord. And we pray that even through worship this morning, that our hearts are being provoked to deeper and more devoted care and adoration and a love and obedience to Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that that through all the elements of our worship this morning, and particularly now as we look to the preaching of your word, Lord, that you would build up your church, that they would be edified, and Lord, that they would be pushed forward by your spirit to greater obedience in your word. Father, I pray that you would give us grace to hear your words this morning from the scripture, and Father, that as we continue to think through who Redemption Church is and, and how we're going to be obedient to the scriptures, that you would give us wisdom and unity of mind and heart as we prepare to found this new work, this new church in the city of Wilson for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, great. Well, it is a, a little hard to believe that we are getting closer and closer to the founding of Redemption Church, where those founding members will gather and covenant together as we kind of officially embark on this mission that we have uh, to reach this world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, starting here in Wilson. So if you were here last Sunday night, you'll remember that we, we introduced the mission statement of Redemption Church. And this mission statement serves as kind of just a, a short summary statement of, of really what Redemption Church is about, about what we exist for and what we're trying to do as a congregation. And so here's the mission statement. I don't think I put this on the screen, but you can, you can catch it. It's not too long, right? So the the mission of redemption is to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. I'll say it one more time in case you didn't get it, but it's to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. So 
This is our mission statement. This kind of summarizes what we believe the purpose of Redemption Church is. And we believe that this is a purpose that, that provides clarity and focus on really who we're going to be about and why we exist. And so this purpose statement really does kind of guide us in every decision we make because we want to accomplish what our mission statement says. So as we prepare for this launch, we want to really be careful and, and unpack what this mission statement means and really what biblically is driving the construction of that statement and how it's going to kind of look like in practice. So in a lot of ways, these next three messages that I'm planning on preaching the next three weeks are kind of going to be more topically driven messages as we look all throughout the scriptures together and try to really clarify what do we mean by exalt Christ? What do we mean by uh, edify the saints? What do we mean by evangelize the world? One, where does that come from in the scriptures? And two, how are we going to do that at Redemption Church? So that's kind of our, our goal these next three weeks is to, is to flesh out this biblical rootedness of the mission and then to talk about how we're going to do it. So again, our mission statement really is, is an outline. It's a three-point outline, right? And it really summarizes what, what the three purposes of the church are according to the scriptures. And you can summarize the three purposes of the church like this. It's worship, discipleship, evangelism. Worship, discipleship, evangelism. That's what the church is about. Worshiping Jesus, discipling, raising people up, making them more mature in Christ, and then making sure people who haven't heard the gospel hear the gospel and we call them to repentance and faith in Christ, right? That's, that's really, that's what the church is about. When you get to the basic foundations, that's what the church is. And so this is what we want to be about. And so we just kind of use some language that perhaps is a little bit more memorable and easier to handle. And so those three purposes, worship, discipleship, evangelism, really are encapsulated in the mission statement. Exalt Christ, worship, Edify the saints, discipleship, evangelize the world, evangelism, right? So those are getting at the three purposes of the church. And so today we're going to look at that first phrase, exalt Christ, exalt Christ. And we're going to look at the, what biblical worship is in the church and, and what it looks like for when we gather on a Sunday morning to exalt Christ, how we do that. And so that's going to be our goal. So the summary statement for the sermon, if you want to jot this down, is as follows. As Redemption Church, our aim in all that we do, particularly through our corporate worship, will be to exalt Christ. That's what we want it to be about. We want to make much of Christ. We want to exalt him, lift him up. We want to magnify him. We want everything to be centered on Jesus. So as we consider what it means for the church to exalt Christ, what it means for us to exalt Christ. We want to look at a variety of scriptures to help us understand this, but we're going to break down our discussion in three components, okay? So this is kind of the outline for the sermon. We're going to look at the mandate of Christ-exalting worship, the mandate of Christ-exalting worship. Secondly, the elements of Christ-exalting worship. And then thirdly, the aim or the fruit of Christ-exalting worship. So that's going to kind of provide the structure for our, our discussion as we look to God's Word this morning. So let's first consider the mandate of Christ-exalting worship. Now, as you think about the routine in a lot of churches of, of weekly worship, a lot of people just don't really get all that excited about it, do they? 
In fact, their hearts are kind of hardened to that routine. And, and I think this is just an absolute unspeakable tragedy that so many Christians don't really seem all excited about worship, nor really see the purpose of it. And I think this is, again, a tragedy because weekly worship establishes the rhythm of the life of a local church. And and sadly, when Christians come in, they often grumble about the worship in their church. They'll describe it as dry or, or boring. And normally when you walk into a new church to worship, if you just kind of look at people's faces and gaze upon them, you will more often than not see scowls instead of smiles grunting instead of praise, and mumbling instead of singing. And for many churches, the weekly worship of the church is a miserable experience. It ought not to be this way. But so often the mundane rhythm, the the habit of weekly worship, what it tends to do when worship is like this, when it's dry, it's boring, when no one's excited to worship King Jesus, what tends to happen is our faith is deflated rather than inflated. We leave more discouraged in our faith rather than encouraged and excited. And I'm I'm convinced that the impoverishment of much of what is called worship today is at the result of turning worship into something man-centered rather than Christ-centered. Why do so many people seem unexcited about worship? It's because so few churches practice what is biblically worship and making Christ the center of the worship, not you right? Because when you're the center of the worship, you're going to leave disappointed. You might leave a little puffed up a little bit, but that's going to deflate rather fast. What we need is the depth and the richness of Christ-centered worship. Because a man-centered church, man-centered worship, it it focuses on the people in the pew, or in our case, the chairs, right? Uh, That's what it's focusing on. All of the worship order, it's, it's laid out, you know, it's the, the elements are chosen, the message is spoken, they're, they're very intentional in all this, but, but in a man-centered worship service, all of it is tailored around how do, we, how do we meet the felt needs of the people who are going to be showing up on Sunday. And again, this, this has nothing to do with style. It's got nothing to do with those types of categories, because for some, man-centered worship takes on a strongly contemporary vibe, Right? Because it's all about the latest and the greatest. It's all about being flashy and showy. It's all about being modern, quick-paced, and, and feel good, right? So, so there's wailing guitar solos. There's strobe lights like you're at a disco. There's, there's laughter. There's frivolity. And these seeker-friendly churches just tend to make the church about you, not about Christ, not about God. It's all about being cool and hip, and it's all about convincing the world, hey, you know, we're Christians, but we're not weirdos, right? We're, we're kind of like you. And as a result, the worship services just come away as superficial and, and shallow and empty, entertaining perhaps, but it's not worship. But again, it's not just in contemporary churches. Even more traditional style churches can have a very man-centered approach to the way they, they worship because the worship is designed to be routine, right? It's designed not to rock the boat. It's designed to be the same thing each week and week out. And, and so those gathered for worship kind of get into this rut of not really concerning themselves about worshiping Jesus, but it's just about doing my religious duty, getting in, getting out so I can get to the buffet line in time. So man-centered worship either tends to be incredibly superficial, meaning there's no richness and there's no depth, or it tends to be dry and cold and formal. That tends to be the way it goes, right? But Christ-centered worship is different. 
Christ-centered worship puts you last. It puts you not in the center, it puts Christ, Jesus, in the center. And as the congregation gathers to worship Christ and focus on Christ, then that vision of Christ's glory and goodness begins to captivate the hearts of those who are gathered. And so the congregation who worships and centers their worships on Christ are going to interact with the weight and the richness of scriptural truths about the gospel and about Christ. And so Christ-centered worship doesn't focus on the felt needs of the attendees, but rather It seeks to put God first and foremost, worshiping the Lord with the right heart and also the right forms or practices of worship. Because Christ-centered worship not only concerns itself with the heart, which is hugely important, but it also concerns itself with the right form of worship. And when Christ is the center of a church's worship, worship will be rich and sweet and it will never be boring. So at Redemption Church, this is what we want to do, right? We want to exalt Christ. We want to worship in a Christ-centered way, a Christ-exalting way. We don't want to to fall into the quicksand of man-centered worship that, that ultimately chokes out the spiritual life of the church and enslaves us to spiritual frivolity. We want depth. We want richness. We want to encounter Christ. And so as I present the case for Christ-centered worship for Redemption Church this morning, I want to do so positively. I could spend a great deal of time critiquing uh, modern worship practices, right? But I want to build a positive picture of Christ-exalting worship that is dripped in the commands of Scripture. So as we think about Christ-centered worship, I I want to demonstrate in this first point the mandate of Christ-centered worship. In other words... We have a responsibility to make Christ the center. This is what God expects us to do when we worship. God abhors man-centered worship, but God is glorified when Christ is exalted, when his people gather. And this gets to the very heart, right? This mandate for Christ-exalting worship, it gets to the very heart of why you and I were created. Why we were created. We were created for worship. This is why we exist. So I think every child goes through a Lego stage at some point, right? Some of you are still there and you're a grown-up, right? I mean, Legos are cool, all right? Well, I had kids just so I could play with Legos again and not be a weirdo, right? So, um, so Legos are fun, right? So these small interlocking bricks, I mean, they're just a worldwide phenomenon, but they're the spurn of every parent who walks barefoot through their house at night. Um, but, but they are fun, and so it's wonderful to watch children play with these bricks because they'll come up with some sort of crazy intention or design. You know, whether it's a spaceship or, or a house or a robot or a dinosaur, they make all of these things, and they'll come and bring it to you, and, 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 and Jude often does this, well, what do you think it is? <laughs> and you have to try to figure out what, well, I'm, it looks like a, a snake, a dinosaur. I'm not sure, right? But he's got an intention in mind. He's got a purpose behind it as he designs and creates. And in a very similar way, in a much more complex way, as God the creator creates you and me, not out of Lego blocks, but out of atoms and materials of the earth, right? What he does is he actually defines the purpose of our creation. He has an intent for why you were formed, why you are exist. And again, a lot of people struggle with their purpose in life. In fact, you can find book after book, show after show, trying to help people figure out what you, how to find purpose and meaning in life. 
And it's not until we tap into the original design of the creator that we will begin to find fulfillment and purpose. If you begin to look for that in other places and other capacities, you're going to come up empty because we were designed for the purpose of worship. This creator God, he placed the stars in the sky. He organized the boundaries of the sea. He calculated the number of legs on a centipede. He does everything with intentionality and purpose. He is the creator. And as he creates humanity, he creates us in his own image as the pinnacle of his created work. So because human beings are creatures formed at the hand of the creator, God the creator assigns us meaning. He assigns us purpose. And purpose is not something you find. It's not something you invent or create for yourself. Rather, purpose is something we receive from God, mandated from God. God created us in his own image so that we might glorify him in worship. This is why you exist. This is why I exist. And so the, the, the scriptures talk about this, right? The preacher in Ecclesiastes tells us in Ecclesiastes 3.11 that God has put eternity in our hearts, right? That God has wired us to have a relationship with him and ultimately to, to worship him. And so this aching restlessness we feel about our lack of purpose ultimately reveals the truth that as Acts says, Acts 17.28 that in him we are to live and move and find our being. Right? This is why we exist. This is for which we exist. So God has placed a key component in our design as human beings. Like when God made Adam and Eve, remember what he said in Genesis? Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, so God created man in his own image, the scripture says, in the image of God, he created a male and female, he created them. That's Genesis 1, 25 through 27. So, so think of the Imago Dei, right? That's Latin for the, the image of God. Think of this idea of the image of God as each human being being constructed like a little mirror, all right? A little mirror. And each of those mirrors are to reflect back the image of the one who looks into it. So as God looks into our lives, he ought to see his own likeness, his own glory, his own reflection, so that he might be praised as glorious. That's the intent, so as God beholds us and looks into us and sees his own reflection, he sees his, his own glory. And we are created to worship. This is a key part of who we are. So worship is essential to who we are as human beings. God has designed you. He has designed me to reflect his own image so we might find our purpose in him. So we have a responsibility given to us by the creator for worship. But as we all know, there's a, a huge problem. And that problem is sin. That human beings rebelled against the creator God. We looked for purpose in creation rather than the creator, Paul would say in Romans chapter 1. And thankfully, God, by his wonderful grace, sent a rescuer to save us from our misdirected purposes. Right? He sent Jesus to free us from the bondage of sin and to ultimately liberate us to true worship. Right? This is one of the main reasons why Christ came into the world is so that you might be restored to your original purpose. 
As an image bearer in sin, you're shattered, you're distorted, you're like a, a funhouse mirror, right? It doesn't accurately reflect who God is because you're, you're a sinner. You've rebelled against God, you're distorted. You still have the image of God, but it's, it's maligned, it's not right. And so Christ comes in as the Redeemer to rescue us for his glory and to restore us to our original purpose, which is worship. So listen to this from Isaiah 46, verse 13. You know, Isaiah says, I bring near my righteousness, it is not far off, and my salvation I will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. You see the connection there between God's rescuing work and his glory? That God rescues us and saves us and redeems us so that he might be glorified, so that he might have worshipers who praise him, and he's gathering a a people for his own possession. So God's primary motive in all that he does throughout all the cosmos is his own glory. That's his motivation. That's his drive. His glory is the highest good in the universe. And what motivates him to send his son in love to rescue us is his glory. He does this so that he might have a people, a church, for his own possession, made up of all the peoples of the earth, right, so that he might be glorified. We are rescued to worship. That's the purpose. So this means that worship isn't optional for a Christian. It's not optional for humanity, right? This is the mandate. This is why we've been created, is to worship God. And we're either going to worship God or worship something else. Every human being can't help but worship. It's hardwired into the way God made us. But we were made to find our identity as human beings as being an instrument of praise towards God. Because this, after all, is the only response to God's redemption. If God has saved you and redeemed you and has made you his own through Jesus Christ, God has filled your heart with thankfulness to him, hasn't he? That as we think about our misdirected idolatry, the misdirected worship that we all have done in our sin, isn't it amazing that God would save us, that he would do that for me, for you? And as we think about all the love that he lavishes upon us in Christ Jesus, how how Christ, our our older brother, goes to the cross on our behalf, how, how can we not sing in joyous worship if we really understand what God has rescued us from? We should sing and respond in praise that those who receive God's rescuing grace respond just like Moses and the Israelites. I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously, right? Worship is an instinctive response to those who have been truly saved, right? Because when we really understand what the gospel has done, how Jesus has redeemed us, how he's paid the penalty for our sin, then we can't help but burst forth in extravagant praise, so, so praise is not simply a mandate. Mandate sounds like it's a requirement, which it is, but it's much more than just some obligatory duty that we have to do now that we're Christians, right? Oh, I got to worship Jesus. You know, he saved me from my sins. That's the least I can do for him, right? No, but worship is a joy. It's a privilege that we have to worship Christ. And so in response to this glory, God has awakened our groggy hearts from the stupor of our anxiety into the dynamic zeal of giving us a worshipful purpose. Exuberant praise emerges from a heart of love to God, a heart that responds to his extravagant grace. So when we sing, we don't sing softly, but we sing loudly 
and robustly with conviction and great affection to the Lord. When we pray, we, we don't do so with coldness, but rather we ought to pray with red-hot zeal and love for God. You see, it is the salvation of God that tunes our hearts to join in the melody of the symphony of the glory of God. The gospel brings our hearts into pitch to this great song of the cosmos, and it cranks up the volume of our praise. This is what God does for us in Christ. So at Redemption Church, we want to be worshiping the Lord, exalting Christ in such a way that we're driven by a profound sense of gratitude over what God's grace has done for us. He has saved us by his grace and his grace alone. We've been set free from the bondage of sin. We've been delivered from hell and condemnation. And so may we then, in response to God's faithfulness and grace, may we exalt the Christ who saves in glorious worship. This is our mandate and this is our privilege. Second, let's look at the elements of Christ-exalting worship, the elements of Christ-exalting worship. So again, worship begins first and foremost in the heart, right? That if we don't have a heart that's been transformed by the gospel, worship will be impossible. No matter what you do in the worship service, you're not going to be able to worship because you haven't received the grace of God. You haven't repented of sin. You haven't put your faith in Christ. So worship always begins as an inward explosion from the heart, right? We have to have new hearts that explode in worship, transformed by God's grace. And so worship begins within, but, but it doesn't stay within, right? It's expressed outwardly in our actions as we worship the Lord. So God is not only concerned about the heart, though he certainly is. He's also concerned about the way we worship, the forms in which we worship him, particularly through the local church. So this might be a question just pastors and ministry leaders think about, but I think it ought to be a question every Christian ought to think about. And it's questions like these. Well, what does God expect us to do when we gather to worship him on Sunday morning? Have you ever asked that question before? I mean, are are we free to, to do whatever we want to worship? Is there a way to worship merely out of our own preferences, what we like to do in expressing our worship to him? These are important questions that that particularly pastors and worship leaders and uh, ministry leaders have to think through. But it's a question I think you should be thinking about as well, because there are really two different approaches to structuring a church's corporate worship. And these are terms that, again, most people aren't familiar with, but they're important in just categorizing some of this. So let me share them with you. There's kind of two different approaches. One is the normative principle, and the second is the regulative principle, right? Normative principle, regulative principle. Of course, these aren't fixed camps. There's some variations in between. So, but, but these are kind of two trajectories or categories of the way Christians approach worship services. So more often than not, most evangelicals, whether they know the terms or not, they're in the normative principle camp, okay? That's where most American Christians probably are. So what is the normative principle? The normative principle states that as long as Scripture doesn't prohibit the practice, then you are free to do it in corporate worship. So as long as Scripture doesn't say, don't do that, sure, go for it. Include it in your worship service. The regulative principle states that the church's worship should be regulated by the scripture. In other words, if scripture says we should be doing it, then we do it. 
And if scripture doesn't say we shouldn't be doing it, then we, we don't do that either, right? We do only what the scriptures say we must do in worship because this is God's word and we believe the, the worship of Christ should be regulated by the word of Christ. So of course there are variances in each camps and there are different uh, tendencies in each one, but the normative principle side can get very loose as you would imagine and ends up with kind of really strange worship practices that nobody's ever heard of before until this age. And then on the other hand, though, the more regulative principle sides, they have the tendency of sometimes being too rigid and cold and callous in matters that Scripture speaks about. However, I believe a big part of the problem of worship today in our country, in our churches, has to deal with the normative principle. Because the normative principle tends to always look for what's new and what's flashy. What works? What gets people engaged? What gets people excited? What gets people to show up? And I'm convinced that this consumeristic and entertainment innovations that have taken up so much of the seeker-sensitive movement that began to arise in the 1980s, I believe that all of these new things have only impoverished the worship of the church. Because here's what happens. When worship begins to grow stale, right, people aren't engaging with the Lord anymore. They, they seem to be growing bored or something like that. It's common for ministry leaders to say, all right, well, we got to figure out something new to do to mix it up a little bit, to get the blood pumping again, to get people excited. And so they begin to look to new methods and innovations in worship. And so what ends up happening is it's a well-intentioned thing, but it's actually a foolish thing because they aim to address the issues of the eternal hearts. People aren't worshiping with changing the forms of the worship, the external practices of worship. And again, that's not going to work. You don't change the heart by changing what you do outside. It requires repentance and coming to Christ. And so though well-intentioned, these innovations actually hinder the renewal of worship because they spurn, they, they neglect, they cast aside the means of grace, these worship practices that the church has used for millennia and that God has specifically prescribed in the scripture for the good of the church. So these new trends may elicit some excitement at first. They seem to bring some vigor, but that vigor isn't sustained because what is provoked in the, isn't a, a heart of worship, but it's the allure of the new, right? And Americans love whatever is the latest, greatest thing, right? And so these new methods often appeal to this consumeristic longing for the latest and greatest, but at the end of the day, it actually is only reinforcing the church's idolatry, so rather than seeking to introduce new practices of worship at redemption, what we're trying to do is actually return to the timeless biblical principles that God has given for his church in worship. Worship renewal will not come by getting into a room and coming up with a whole bunch of creative new ideas to make worship more engaging. But rather, worship renewal will begin by utilizing the means of grace that God has provided in his word. Recovering these spiritual practices clearly commanded in the scripture. And what are those things clearly commanded in the scripture? Preaching, prayer, congregational singing, scripture reading, and the ordinances, baptism in the Lord's Supper. That's it, right? <laughs> Nothing flashy about any of those things. But that's what God's word tells us to do. And through those channels of grace that God has given his church, that is where the Lord will pour out his spirit and bring new life to a people's worship in the local church. So Redemption Church, if we have to pick a camp of the normative principle and the regulative principle, we're going to be in the, in the regulative principle camp. Why? Because we want everything we do to be driven by God's word. And we believe that ultimately God's word is not restrictive 
but rather God's word gives us the freedom to practice corporate Christian worship that, that is ultimately going to be more effective. God's ways are better than our ways, even when it comes to the corporate worship of his church. So we confine our worship to these practices given to us in scripture because they've been designed by God. He came up with them, not us, and these are the ways in which God has told us he will bestow his sanctifying grace upon each of our lives. They are the means of grace that God has told us he will use to build up his church. And if God's told us he's going to use them to build up his church, why would we neglect them? Why would we minimize them? Why would we come up with new things that that are man-centered and man-influenced? Let's just return to, to doing what God's word says And let's see the fruit of the Spirit begin to work through them. So there's no need to pursue flashiness. We're going to pursue excellence at Redemption Church. We're going to try to do things well and with skill, but we're not trying to to wow or to impress with our performance or with our production values. We just want to worship Jesus the way God has told us to worship him, knowing that through these practices God has given us in the Scripture, the church is going to be built up. Lives will be transformed. People will be sanctified. People will come to know Christ. So as we consider these means of grace, again, I could spend a a whole sermon on each one of these, but we don't have the time for that. So I'm, I'm about to do a marathon run through these means of grace just to give you a brief snapshot of them. So the first one is, is preaching, right? This is clearly commanded in scripture. Paul charges Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 to preach the word, preach the word. Throughout the ministry of Christ, what is Jesus doing? He's teaching. He's preaching. It's what he does. Paul's missions efforts, how did they begin? Well, he goes into the synagogue and he starts preaching. He starts teaching. So the epistles, if you read those, they're constantly describing, right, the the, the teaching and preaching ministry of the church. It's kind of the, the main gist of what they're about as the key responsibility of elders in the church. So preaching today in many ways has really fallen on hard times. Many pastors in an effort to try to preserve preaching from short attention spans and interests, they tend to reduce the biblical content or minimize it as much as possible and kind of turn their their sermons into TED Talks, self-help conversations, right? Conversations that Oprah Winfrey would approve of. So com- combined with the, the corrosive effects of the prosperity gospel, all of this through the preaching has begun this kind of man-centered impulse, Church is about you, worship is about you, Christianity is about you, everything's about you. And that, that kind of has filtered through the preaching. And this is the plight of man-centered worship, and it's most pronounced, most dangerously expressed through the sad state of preaching in our American churches. But however, expositional preaching, the preaching of the Bible, this remains at the heart of biblical worship. Because we don't worship in a, a vacuum right? We worship in response to the truth. And if we want to worship rightly, we must hear the truth rightly proclaimed, right? So when we worship in response to the truth, then God is going to be exalted. And so as the preacher heralds the truth of God's word to God's people, the church's hearts ought to to swell in praise to God. And I could say a great deal more about preaching, but But redemption will be a church that practices expository preaching. Right now, through this summer, we're trying to really carefully go throughout the scripture and really lay a solid foundation 
But our plan is day one at our public launch, we're going to begin going verse by verse through books of the Bible. And there'll be some other topical message here or there, but all of those will be, be rooted in the scripture and driven by the scriptures. We want to make preaching a priority in our church's worship. Why? Well, one, because God's commanded it for our spiritual good, but it is good for us. We need God's word. Like all of our worship, we want our preaching to be centered on Christ. We don't want it to be man-centered. Of course, we're going to make application to you. But because Christ is the center, we're not going to have a problem of, of, of convicting you of your sin as the scripture brings it up, right? Because that's important as we pursue God's holiness in Christ that we need to hear hard truths about ourselves sometimes that the scripture reveals. But above all, we want our preaching to be centered on Christ. What else does the scripture tell us to do? It tells us to pray, right? That's the second one, to pray. And we see this command throughout the scriptures, all right? I could, again, we could spend all day just going through the Bible looking at prayer. But, but again, just a couple places, right? So 1 Timothy 2.8, Paul tells Timothy, I desire that in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands with anger, without anger or quarreling. So prayer is a, a vital part of Christian worship. But again, this is another one of those things that has tended to, got, to get minimized more and more in American churches, because prayer is kind of awkward, right? So we just kind of use prayer to, to, as a transition piece to give like 30 seconds for the band to get in place, right? And so that's kind of the way we use prayer. But, but when have we really stopped and prayed during our worship services? It's rare today to see a church give extensive time to prayer. But nevertheless, God commands us to pray, and prayer should be an integral part of our church's worship. What's another means of grace that God has given us, another element of worship? Congregational singing, congregational singing. That takes us back to, to Colossians 3.16 as we read as we began, right? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So music and worship has become a huge part of worship today. And often in attempting to attract people, the music has become kind of the, the main vehicle through which we win visitors primarily through the skills and performance of those who are on the stage. So whether it's through a choir or whether it's through a praise band, a lot of times music has become almost more important for most people than the preaching of the scriptures, which I find dangerous, right? And so I, I want to argue that, that music is both less important than you think and more important than you think. <laughs> it's both less important than you think and more important than you think. It's less important because so often we tend to make such an idol out of music and that we begin to elevate our own musical taste and preferences above everything else, and we ultimately turn our, our music in our worship to, to man-centered events that appease the crowd, entertains the crowd. But however, it's also more important than you think because through singing... God's people voicing their song together has a wonderful sanctifying effect on the church as we are encouraging one another with the sound doctrine of God's word in, in joyous harmony. So at Redemption Church, we will prioritize congregational singing, congregational singing, singing together. We're not, we're not going to have different soloists come up here and live out their fantasy of being on American Idol. That's it's not what we're about, but rather we're going to have musicians, we're going to have worship leaders, and we're going to do the music well as we possibly can. But the goal is not for them to be able to show off their talents. Their goal is to get you to sing, right? 
That's, that's going to be the driving impulse of our worship ministry is not showing off skill, but, but stirring the hearts of God's people to sing loudly and richly. And so because you are the primary voice when it comes to the music of the church, we want to be able to hear you sing and we want to arrange the music in such a way that encourages you to sing. Right? We don't want you to ever feel like you're, you're watching a concert when you come to church on Sunday morning. In fact, even through the way we mix the sound, we try to keep the volume as low as possible so that you can hear the brother and sister sitting next to you sing. And you might think, well, I don't want people to hear me sing. Well, that, that's maybe true, but your voice makes a joyous noise. And you know why? Because through singing, you are actually admonishing your brother and sister in Christ. This is something I don't think a lot of people realize that as we gather for worship on Sunday morning, we're singing to Jesus. I mean, we're praising him to an audience of one, but in, a, in another way, we're actually singing to one another. We're reminding one another, here's what God has done. Here's his grace. Here's his righteousness. Here's what God has done for me. And so it's almost a way of encouraging one another as we sing to one another. And what a joyous thing it is to hear the people of Christ sing together. So in our worship ministry, we, we want to focus on the choir. And not the choir on stage, the choir out here, right? You are the choir. And we want to sing together. We want to hear each other sing. And, we, and as we do that, we want to utilize newer songs and older songs, songs that have proven themselves to be sound in doctrine and beneficial for the building up of the church. And so we're so thankful for, even though we've had kind of a variety of, of worship leaders come in and out since we've been founded, it, the, the recurring thing has been, one, how wonderful we've been blessed with these worship leaders who have been coming in, guys like Tim, who are doing such a wonderful job in leading us. But two, just hearing you sing these wonderful songs have just been such an encouragement to me. And so congregational singing is going to be the focus of our music ministry and worship as it develops and builds and expands. So congregational singing, what's another means of grace, an element of worship? Scripture reading, scripture reading. First Timothy 4.13, until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. The public reading of scripture, Paul tells Timothy. So again, why do we do this? Why do we want to read the Bible publicly? Of course, we tend to read the sermon text, but again, we, we don't want to just only read the Bible when we're about to preach a sermon, right? We want to include the scripture all throughout our worship service. And why is that? Well, because we want to be Christ-centered, not man-centered. And if we're going to worship Christ, then we need to hear the word of Christ. We want our worship to be provoked in response to the truth of Christ. We want to hear from God by reading the scriptures, so we want to sprinkle the scriptures all throughout our worship service. And if you can tell, we've tried to be intentional about that at redemption from the beginning to the, the time of confession and pardon to the benediction at the end to the, the scripture reading for the sermon. We want you to just be filled with God's word as we're worshiping together. And then finally, what does the scripture tell us to do? The ordinances, right? The ordinances. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. And again, we could spend a lot of time on each of these. But we haven't done these yet because we're not a church yet. We will be soon. As soon as we covenant together, there will officially be a church body, a, a covenant community. And on our founding night, we plan to take the Lord's Supper together as a signifying of the fact that we are now bound together in covenant as a local church. So we're not doing these things yet, but as the need for baptism arises, we'll do baptism during Sunday morning. And of course, uh, we will consistently and regularly take the Lord's Supper. And so these two ordinances... Uh, have been given to us by Christ and have been commanded for the good of his church. Now that's 
the elements of worship. And that's, that's pretty much all of them, right? I mean, there's, this is what the scripture tells us to do. So if you've been worshiping with us at Redemption these last few weeks, I'm sure to some of you our worship seems a little bit strange even, right? Different from what you're used to. Because what we're trying to do, and we're going, we haven't figured it out yet, so we're going to keep tweaking things and trying to improve things. And again, the, the order of the elements isn't the point. It's what, what are the elements is the, is the important factor, right? So we'll tweak things, we'll revise things, we'll move things around, we'll, we'll, we'll experiment a little bit to see what works best, but we're going to be working with these elements in Scripture, these means of grace that God has given us. And we've done our best so far to try to make Christ clearly the center of our worship. And so we've, we've tried to emphasize the priority of these scriptural commands. So, of course, we, we prioritize the preaching of God's word. We want to emphasize congregational singing. We want to to fill our worship with scripture reading and prayer. And again, when we officially become a church, we want to take the Lord's Supper and practice baptism together. So there is, again, a great freedom in how you arrange these things. But at the end of the day, we want to prioritize these basic elements because they're what God has told us to do. So I've already been so encouraged by the worship at redemption these last few months. There has been such a mood of great joy and enthusiasm. There has been a, a, a joy, but yet a holy seriousness as we worship the Lord. Because our goal as Redemption Church is not to, to entertain you, but to bring you into the presence of God, to encounter him, to fill you with divine truth driven from the scriptures so that you might worship the Lord Jesus Christ, and not just you as an individual, but that we might worship together, exalting Christ. And that leads to the third point I want to draw out for us, the fruit of Christ-exalting worship. The fruit of Christ-exalting worship. A church's spiritual decline tends to begin with deadened worship. This has been my experience. Cold, dry, heartless worship, it dishonors God, and it destroys our spiritual lives. And ultimately, it hinders the work of evangelism. So when a church begins to plateau and decline in number, chances are the fruitlessness began a long, long time ago as the church drifted into a chilly disposition for worship. And the icy chill of dead worship over time has frozen the church into spiritual complacency. And if such coolness continues in the church for an extended period of time, then it will be only a matter of time before God ceases the ultimately worthless praise of the people who gather for that worship service. And so I think the, the littered landscape of empty sanctuaries all across our country testifies to the hollowness of the worship that has filled that building for so many years. Because churches who fail to worship rightly, with the right heart and the right modes of expression of worship, these elements of worship, guess what? They're going to have their lampstand removed by King Jesus. And the reason why is because they're not being fruitful. Fruitfulness begins with right worship. Congregational worship is the lifeblood of Christ's church. And so when worship begins to wane in the church, the entire church begins to wane. It's like a plant without access to water that a church without worship will bear no fruit. It won't. Joylessness in corporate worship dispenses a repugnant smell in the community in which that church exists. Right? That foul odor, odor that, that radiates from our corporate gatherings, it puts a bad taste in everybody's mouths, particularly the mouths of the lost. 
to them, the gospel is the cause of the dour gathering, right? So, man, you guys look miserable as you're worshiping Jesus. What are you here for? Well, we're here because of Christ, because of the gospel. Really? Well, I don't want anything of that, right? If Christ makes you look this miserable, this unhappy, this cold, this distant, this uncaring, then I don't want anything to do with Jesus, right? That's what the lost world thinks as they look into cold, dead worship. So they find Christ and his work uncompelling, and ultimately ineffective. And here then is, I think, the ultimate reason for the recovery of biblical, hot, red with zeal worship that's passionate and pleading to the Lord Jesus. The reason we must recover this, the reason we must practice this is because if we don't, our evangelism is hindered. Our evangelism is hindered. Imagine if a random stranger from, from our streets came in to our worship service. And just think, what would... What would he discern as he watched us worship as a church? Would he see smiles or or scowls, singing or mumbling, zeal or dullness, warmth or coldness, community or isolation, passion or apathy? I mean, these are difficult questions, but they're questions we must ask ourselves. And if we answer them honestly, I think most of us would admit that we've still got a lot of work to do in these areas, right? We, we have to admit that our corporate worship gatherings often do not express the, the dynamics of joy and zeal that the scriptures command them to have. So why, what, what does dry worship communicate to Wilson about the God in whom we have gathered to worship? So you see, when we confess that God is infinitely worthy and glorious and gracious to us, but our worship contradicts the message we proclaim, that doesn't make any sense. Friends, the world can sniff out the odor of hypocrisy from a mile away, and congregations must be marked by the sweetness of the aroma of joy in Christ. The incense of praise must disperse throughout the community. The confession of our words and and the tenor of our voices, they must work together in in consistency and in joyous union as we communicate to our city the glories of the gospel and the glories of our Christ who saved us. You see, when we leave our weekly gatherings of worship, we ought to leave with the aroma of Christ upon us so that as we go through, that, that odor, that smell, that sweetness lingers upon us. Rich congregational worship changes our demeanor as we go about our week. And with the glory of Christ shining upon our faces, we provide an attractive witness and a compelling message of the truthfulness of the gospel. Praise and proclamation go hand in hand. Worship and evangelism go hand in hand. Our praise is ultimately spurred by the gratitude for the grace of God. And and as we receive the grace of God in our life and press into that grace, it compels us, right, to, to declare this gospel to the world, to the wonders of the Christ who saves. So worship in and of itself is an evangelistic act. Do you realize that? That the proper response to God's saving work is praise and proclamation. And biblical worship will produce evangelistic fruit. We praise the work of God in our lives. His grace has saved us from our sin. And we praise the Lord for the redemption he's given us in Jesus Christ and the salvation that he has provided by his blood. And that verbal praise leads to gospel proclamation. 
Through the joyous work of evangelism, we are announcing to our community the goodness of the Lord and his saving work so that, when, so that they too then can hear about Christ, about the salvation found in him. So praise spills over into proclamation. Doxology leads to mission. Worship mobilizes us to evangelism. So church, let us then be a church that focuses and prioritizes exalting Christ together. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your grace and mercy that has restored us and made us new so that we can truly worship you. Lord, you, you have given us a mandate of worship, a responsibility of worship. It's the purpose for which we were created, but yet because of our sin, we needed a redeemer, a savior, a rescuer, and thanks to you, O oh Lord, for sending Christ to not only save us for our sins, but to, to repair us for the purpose which we were created, which is to worship you. And so, Father, we pray that the people of Redemption Church would be a people who are so stirred with gratitude and thankfulness to Christ that, that our worship would never be dull or boring because we are passionately thankful and grateful for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that as we focus on the elements of worship that you have given us in your word, Father, we pray that, that through these plain and simple elements of, of preaching, of prayer, of congregational singing, of scripture reading, Lord, that, that all these things that are rather unimpressive would be used by you in such a, a mighty way, knowing that, Lord, these are the means of grace that you've given to your church and that you've promised you will build your church up with. And so, Father, we pray that we would press into these, that we would worship deep from within our hearts. And, Lord, that ultimately that as your people gather with the right heart, with the right means of worship, that, that Christ would be exalted in our worship and our praise. And, Lord, that people would come to know Christ. Lord, as they see the people of redemption worship each Sunday, may the sweetness of our fellowship and the bond and communion we have with Christ Lord, attract them to Jesus so they would hear the gospel, so they would repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would help Redemption Church to be a church that exalts Christ, that this would be our focus in our worship service, being Christ-centered, Christ-exalting in all that we do. So, Lord, as we close in song, we pray that as we sing, we sing to you, O Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer, that you would build up your church faithfully, according to your word, as your people gather in joyous obedience to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please stand as we sing.